Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Isaiah 65 I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh, the broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down. For my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, But you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and will be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall build vineyards. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. 
They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Uh, welcome. My name is Tim. If we haven't met, uh, one of the pastors here on campus. And it's great to see you in week 10. Thanks for persevering through the term with us. And hasn't it been great to work through Isaiah? Uh, it's been a big book, uh, but it's been really rich to dig into this prophecy and to keep on seeing the great hope that it gives us. So let's pray and ask that in the midst of end of term fun, uh, God continues to work by His Spirit to help us understand and apply His Word in our lives. Let's pray together. Our great God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had week by week to keep on coming to hear from you, to hear your word, to hear you speak, that you give hope and guidance and direction to our lives, that we may understand you and ourselves and the world that you have made. Father, we pray that today you'd help us to again rightly come to hear your voice and so respond in a way that is pleasing to you. Father, we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, do you ever get the feeling that there's something wrong with the world? Uh, I enjoy cycling. I haven't been able to get out that much recently. Uh, but often we'll head down to La Perouse. It's a nice flat ride, some quiet roads. Uh, we'll head down past the container terminal at Port Botany. We'll ride across past the eastern suburbs Memorial Park on the way up to Bunurong Road. Now, between the containers and Bunurong Road, there's a slight incline. Uh, if you've driven there, you probably didn't even notice it existed. But one of the joys of cycling is you find every contour in the road and you feel it and you get to enjoy it. A couple of years back, we were riding uh, with a young guy who, as we're coming up this stretch, he fell behind a bit. Now, he's a good rider. Wouldn't expect him to fall behind on that little hill. So I thought he might have had a puncture, maybe his chain fell off, something wrong with the bike. I turned around and went back. There's nothing wrong with the bike. It was him. You see, a couple of months earlier, he'd shared that the child he and his wife were expecting had some pretty serious health complications. They weren't sure the child would survive. We grieved. We prayed together, trusting God with this precious life. But when his daughter was born, she survived only a few short days. Now, it was tragic for them, for their family, for their friends. What I hadn't realized at the time was that the body of his daughter was buried uh, at the eastern suburbs of Memorial Park. And for my friend that morning, that was the first time he'd gone back that way. He was overcome with the grief. That precious life stolen far too soon. Friends, I don't need to tell you that life can hurt. We know things aren't perfect. But sometimes in our pain, it feels like that hurt just screams at us, demands our attention. And for all of our progress, and medical advances. We haven't been able to get rid of the hurt. We haven't been able to take the pain away. So friends, how do you deal with the pain? How do you come to grips with the suffering in our world? Without God, we're just told to accept this as one of the realities of the world that we live in. It's natural that there's sickness, there's suffering, there's death, there's evolution. It doesn't offer us much hope. We're just told to deal with it, to accept with it, even if it feels so wrong and even unnatural. Some explore spirituality, but often the spiritual advice is to pursue the spiritual and avoid the physical. Again, it's just about suppressing those feelings of hurt. There's no hope of actually truly dealing with it. So is there hope of a better way? Is there an alternative? Well, Christians and the Jews before them believe in one true God 
who is both perfectly good and supremely powerful. He is not only able to do something about the hurt and the suffering we experience, but he has the good desire to as well. And so in their pain, God's people have called out to him to act, knowing that he is able and he is willing. And that's the context of our passage today. You may recall that God's people, this Jewish nation of Israel, they're under his judgment because they've been wicked, they've been rebellious, they haven't listened to his word, they've done what is displeasing to him. And so in God's judgment, he's brought the fearsome Assyrian army down. Uh, They've conquered the northern ten tribes of Israel. and They've marched bringing death right to the very doors of Jerusalem. But God was gracious to save his people from that threat. But God's warning is that when the Babylonians would come in future generations, Jerusalem would fall and God's people would be carried into exile. Uh, But as Jules gave us a great summary, God gave this message of hope to his people that that wouldn't be the end. There would be this promise of restoration that would come through his servant who came to do what the the nation failed to do. This servant would be obedient to God. And through his obedience, he would bring salvation, not just to the people of Israel, but actually offer hope and life to the whole world. The radical way that he would do this, though, would be through his suffering and death as a substitute for all of God's people. You see, there was great hope that God promised. But right now, God's people were still hurting. They were afflicted and they wanted relief. They wanted God to act. And so if you flip back to chapter 63 and verse 15, have a look at what they're saying to God. Chapter 63 and verse 15, they cry out, God, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. You see, they're saying, God, look and see what's going on. Where is your desire, your compassion, your strength for your people? Because we are afflicted. We are hurting. Will you do anything? When we come to the start of chapter 64, their prayer or their cry is that God would kind of rip open the sky and come down and act. So chapter 64 and verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. You see, right now, they are the ones who are trembling, trembling under God's judgment. But they want God to act, to rip open the sky and come and strike fear amongst their enemies and bring relief to them in their pain. Because right now, it seems unbearable. They're afflicted, they're crushed, and they're God's own people. Have a look at verses 9 to 12 of chapter 64. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. The land, their honor, their glory has been trashed. And so they cry out in verse 12, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Do you see their complaint? Life is really hard. They are suffering. The land is destroyed. Death is all around them. 
And they're saying, God, are you going to keep on being silent? God, are you going to stay distant? Or God, will you do something? Will you act? For we are your people. And from chapter 65, we hear God's response. And I'm not sure it's what they were expecting. But perhaps it should have been. So at point two, God is here. Are we with him? As we read just before, as chapter 65 begins, God says he's there waiting as they've been calling out to him. But God's also been calling. God's been calling to his people, ready to welcome them back in relationship. God's like the prodigal father waiting on the doorstep of the family home, arms outstretched, calling for his rebellious son to come home. But there's no answer. Though God raised them, they've gone their own way. And now they rub their rebellion back in God's face as they worship anything else but God, bowing down to idols, pursuing pagan practices, rejecting God's law, the family values that were supposed to set them apart and show them to be God's precious people. And they've spurned them and done everything else. And then as they suffer God's judgment, they call out to Him and they have the cheek, the hide, to say, God, will you keep silent? Won't you do something about this? And so God will graciously answer their cry. And He will act. He will not stay silent. But He warns them about what this will involve. Have a look at chapter 65 and verse 6. Behold, It is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. You see, God will not keep silent, but in acting, God warns that that will bring judgment on the iniquity of not just the nations, of his people as well. And interestingly, God says they should have known this because in verse 6, He's going to act in the way that it is written. And that's interesting. I take it that's a reference to what He has revealed to them in the Scriptures in the past. God says, you should know how I'm going to act because I've told you and I will do what I've said in the Scriptures. So what should they have expected God to do? Well, it's week 10, it's group assignment time. Uh, I've got a question for you. Uh, What should God's people have expected when they called on Him to act? If you're on this half of the room, can you flip back to Psalm 50 and see what that tells us, what they should have expected? That's the verses or the quote that's referred to there. And you guys can go back to Exodus 20. Uh, You've got a whole 45 seconds. It's a bigger question. Enjoy the chat. And I need your answers, otherwise we won't all learn together. So be prepared to share. Go. All right, friends. Let's come back together. What had God written? What should they have expected as they call out to God to act? Oh, what do you guys see in Psalm 50? What should they have expected? Judgment. Judgment? Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's big at the start. Yeah, when God doesn't keep silence, He comes in judgment to judge His people. Uh, anything else you saw in Psalm 50? He's made this covenant. He's made this covenant. Thank you. So there's an, an expectation, a contract, an obligation. Yeah. Anything else? Alongside judgment, there's the hope of gathering His faithful people. There's real judgment, but there's also real hope. So in a sense, they're right to call out to God to act, but if you're in rebellion against God, then that comes with a level of fear, because He will judge those who are, well, rebellious against Him. Uh, what about in Exodus 20? What did you guys see? 
What should they have expected from what God had written? Um, he'll punish those that make idols. Yeah. So he's going back to uh, the Ten Commandments, and he says, if you bow down to anything that isn't God and worship it, well, there's a, a punishment, and even a punishment for future generations, uh, which is what we see there. They're, they're suffering the iniquity of even their fathers, just as God had said He would do. But again, there's this hope that He won't just punish. He will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love Him and keep His commandments. So for God to act in line with what He has written, there is judgment for idolatry. He will come to bring what is right. And so perhaps when we call out to God to do something, we should be aware that that may involve judgment for us if we continue in rebellion against Him. But as these passages told us and as we keep on reading, there is also great hope when God acts for all who have heard God's voice and responded to Him. We saw this most clearly in the past weeks in the work of the servant who did rightly hear and respond to God's word. And now God identifies this group within the nation of Israel who He calls His servants. Perhaps because they've received the salvation of the servant. Perhaps because they've followed the example of the servant. These are those who God has chosen to do His will, to live in His land, to enjoy His blessing. For those who come to God, there is great reward. But verse 11 reminds us the great contrast because those who forsake the Lord, who forget God's holy mountain, who set up a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, God returns that fate on them. He will destine them for the sword. Why? Because when God called, they didn't answer. When God spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in God's eyes and chose what God did not delight in. And so God declares there's this stark division amongst His people. Those who are faithful to Him, His servants, receive His blessing. Those who continue in rebellion suffer His judgment. Have a look at verse 13. We read over the page, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart, and you shall wail for breaking of spirit. You see, in our grief, we often cry out to God. God feels distant. We say, God, why won't you do anything? And you see, God's answer in chapter 65 is, I am here. I am near. I'm even calling out to you. Will you respond? Perhaps the question that we raise in our suffering is, does God care about us? And God's response is, do you care about me? Sadly, it's easy to feel like we don't need God in the good times. And then to blame and accuse God in the bad times for what He's doing to us. But God is gracious to answer. And He is more steadfast and willing for relationship than even we are. If only we would come to Him. God promises the provision, the food, the drink, the rejoicing, the singing, the party that you don't want to miss out on. But the warning is that when we cry out for God to act... That acting means judgment on evil. And while few of us consider ourselves evil, if the description of evil is not listening to God and doing what we want rather than what He wants, then maybe more of us fall into that camp. And so friends, in our suffering, may we hear God's voice as a reminder that there is real consequence if we continue in rebellion. 
God's warning is that there will be hunger and thirst and shame and pain. Those are left with unsatisfied, uh, left unsatisfied and in anguish when we continue in rebellion. And God doesn't say this because He is cruel. God says this to remind us of the reality that we would hear His voice and turn back to Him. Now, in these verses, God is addressing His people, the nation of Israel. But I want to say that invitation is extended to us, non-Israelites today, because really of how the Apostle Paul reflects on Isaiah's words. You see, in Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about the fact that because the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come and has died and been raised again, this offer of relationship and blessing is open to all. We read, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, or that's Israel and everyone else. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's this universal invitation for salvation, for hope, for relationship in the Lord Jesus. And interestingly, when Paul goes to defend this, he quotes Isaiah 65. So just a couple of verses later, he talks about the fact that salvation is now open to those beyond Israel by saying, Isaiah is so bold as to say, speaking as God, you know, God has been found by those who did not seek me. God has shown himself to those who did not ask for me. The nations beyond Israel have come to receive this salvation. And in contrast, the sad reality for many of God's chosen people, verse 21, quoting Isaiah 65, verse 2, but of Israel, Isaiah says, well, speaking for God, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see, the tragic reality is, though Israel heard God's invitation, many ignored it. But in God's sovereign kindness, through the work of the servant, through Jesus' death and resurrection, the invitation that first was heard by Israel is extended to all the nations. So those who never knew God can now find salvation and hope in Jesus. God's eager for relationship and Jesus opens that up to be an open invite. Friends, will you receive that to find hope in suffering and affliction? God's assurance is even in our suffering when He feels distant or negligent, He is near and eager for relationship. The question is whether we will hear, whether we will trust, whether we will come to Him. For if not, we face His judgment. Now that is a genuine message of comfort. But can God offer actual hope that He will change things? That suffering can pass away? That He will do something about our hurt? Or at point three, God is fixing, will we enjoy? And as we think about this, I want to share my lovely car with you. Uh, a couple of months ago, I had to take it to the mechanic, which was most unfortunate. Uh, it's a great old Ford Falcon. It's got a little bit of character to it. Um, it sounds a bit noisier than it probably should. I think the hole in the muffler has kind of opened up again. Uh, it doesn't start all the time, but if you just fiddle with the battery terminals, it generally comes good. The roof lining sags, the bonnet release is held in place with a paper clip, but it's been driving really well for over 300,000 Ks. It's, it's just run in, I think. But the other day, it started to run not so well. I dropped off the mechanic uh, and waited for the phone call for the diagnosis. Uh, later that day, he rang up and said, it was not, not too big a deal. It was misfiring on a few cylinders, but some new spark plugs, some new ignition coils, it would be not a problem. Back running smoothly for another 300,000, give or take. But imagine instead of that phone call, the mechanic rang up and said, yeah, the car's got a few problems. 
but I want to give you a new car. It'll be no cost at all, and this one will work perfectly forever. You can't imagine it happening, could you? There's no chance of it. And yet that's kind of what God says to His people here. And I imagine it was probably equally unexpected. You see, they cry out to God going, where are you? Won't you do something? This hurts. We want action. And God says in verse, from verse 17, I'm going to create a whole new universe that is going to have no more pain or hurt or suffering ever again. And I reckon that must have taken Isaiah's breath away. I reckon that must have blown the Israelites' mind. And it may be familiar to us, but it is a radical promise. Have a look at verse 17. For behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. This is a wonderful hope of no more pain or hurt. For many of us, we just expect that creation will keep on going. It's been around before us. It's probably going to continue after us. But God says He's got plans to change it all up. And while that seems radical and kind of beyond our experience, I think God's been giving His people and us some hints that this might be necessary. You see, back in Isaiah 25, you might recall, God gave the incredible promise that He would swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And if you think about it, if this promise is actually going to be a great joy, some radical work needs to happen on creation. Because if things continue as they do now, just without death, well, our planet will be full, but not just our planet, our hospitals and our nursing homes. Because our bodies are not fit for all eternity. If death is going to be taken away, we and our whole creation need some radical makeover work. And even last week in Isaiah 54, God was trying to give His people this incredible assurance of His love that would never be taken away from them. And He says, My promise to you is even more certain because the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. More certain even than the permanence of creation is God's word of promise. And here God perhaps confirms their suspicions, saying, I'm going to make a whole new universe a new heavens and a new earth. And I think this is the clearest declaration of this promise in the Old Testament. But God had been giving them little glimmers of hope that there would one day be a day without pain or hurt or suffering. Just rejoicing forever. That sounds like the kind of place I could enjoy. Enjoy for a long time. And I hope you could look forward to that for all eternity as well. Uh, the following verses from verse 20 kind of unpack a bit of the delight of this new world that God is making. God says, there shall, be, there shall be in it, or no more shall there be in it, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. The young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. You see, life is beautiful. 
It's stable. Never cut painfully short. Work will be productive and what you labor for, you'll get to enjoy for a long time after that. Everything fearful and frustrating will be taken away and no more pain or grief. And there's even this idea that God will be so near and attuned to His people's desires that before they even express what they need, God knows and has answered. That's the kind of relationship that my wife jokingly says she wishes that we had. That she could just think things and I'd know them and do them. But God says that's the joy that we'll all share with Him in the new creation. And creation itself will be at peace. It's a bit like Bruce the shark in Finding Nemo. You know, fish are friends, not food. And here the wolf and the lion and the, the serpent, they all kind of join this reformed predators club. And no more will they eat other animals. There will be this glorious peace in all of creation. But these words of peace even amongst the animal kingdom, they are words that echo what we saw earlier back in Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, so I want to give you another chance to flip back in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 11. How does what Isaiah 11 has to say about this time of animals being at peace with one another, how does that help us understand the new creation on Isaiah 65? Just 30 seconds. It's a smaller question this time. Enjoy. All right, friends, let's come here together. Isaiah 11, uh, you hopefully picked up that this is describing the day when God's promised and eternal king is going to come. This is the Christ, the one descended from David, the, the son of Jesse. The Christ will come and he will bring justice to the world. There will be peace in all of creation. And Isaiah 65 tells us that that peace amongst the predators and the people, or others, animals, their prey, that's only going to be a reality in the new creation. So it would be wrong to apply this and expect that the wolves and the lions are your friends now. That could be a dangerous misapplication. But Isaiah 11 also tells us that we should expect the new creation when the Christ comes. And that's significant because in Acts chapter 2, uh, we see that the Apostle Peter stands up and declares that the house of Israel and everyone else that we can know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. The one of Isaiah 11 has come through Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And I take it that means that there's a few significant implications for us. Uh, firstly, if this wonderful new creation comes when the King comes, well, this new creation is the kingdom of God that is being described in Isaiah 65 and 66. But if the king has also come, it means this new creation must be imminent. His kingdom, his place to reign for all eternity. And I take it that should be cause for both great joy, but also terror. As we read on into chapter 66, I take it that's what we see. When God comes and establishes His kingdom in justice, judgment will fall on all those who reject His invitation and reject His ways, even if it looks like they are doing great acts of religion and sacrifice. Verses 3 and 4 describe the people offering what seems like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. Slaughtering an ox, sacrificing a lamb, presenting a grain offering, making a memorial offering of frankincense. But they are described in offensive ways, like the one who kills a man or breaks a dog's neck, offers pig's blood. Why? Well, because they've done all these things as they've chosen their own ways. Their soul delights in their abominations. It's sacrifice without relationship, religion without relationship, it's offensive to God. And so God will bring judgment upon them. And instantly in verse 4, we have a repeat of what we read in chapter 65 and verse 12. 
And this seems to be kind of the key idea of what's gone wrong because when God called, no one answered. When God spoke, they did not listen. They've rejected this relationship. Instead, they chose what was right in their own eyes and they did what was evil in God's eyes. They chose what they wanted, but what God did not delight in. And so in verses 15 and 16, God says He is coming in terrible judgment. Uh, like a fire that is going to consume his anger is apparent because by fire the Lord will enter into judgment by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. But in stark contrast, there is a picture of hope for all who hear God's words and respond, all who listen and obey because God promises great comfort and joy. Verses 7 to 9 describe this like miraculous new birth I take it for the whole nation, the kingdom being born through God's people in Zion. And that leads to great joy in verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice, in her with joy, rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. I take it that mourning is over her present state. That you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I'll extend peace to her like a river. And the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounce upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts. And so I will comfort you. And you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. In stark contrast to the, the raging judgment of God, there's this tender mercy of a nursing mother. Bouncing her child on her knee, nourishing her or this child's desires with the milk of her breast. It's the kind of exact opposite, whether you accept God's invitation or you reject Him. In our experience of the world, it is clear to us all that there is something wrong. What we disagree on is the cause of that wrong and whether there's any hope. God confirms our suspicions. Ever since humanity stopped listening to Him and chose for themselves what was right, the world has been under God's judgment. But God provides a hope that nowhere else or no one else can offer. Because He alone is doing something about it, because He alone can do something about it. And His incredible hope is that if you listen to His voice, if you accept His invitation, if you come and trust Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be part of His kingdom. The new creation with no more hurt or pain or suffering or sadness. But his severe warning is that if you continue to reject him, there is only judgment when he acts. And suffering now we, is a time when we often cry out to God about the great injustice we feel. But perhaps now suffering we should also hear God crying out. And telling us that there is something wrong with the world that we need to act on before it is too late. C.S. Lewis wrote about this famously in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so friends, next time we or those we love are feeling the grief and the anguish and the hurt of this world, perhaps God in His grace is reminding us that this is not where we belong, that there is a glorious future to come. Would we but listen to Him, respond to Him, seek Him while He can be found, that we can enjoy a relationship with Him for all eternity.
God is fixing the world. The question is, are we part of what He is doing? Will we share in the joy of the glorious new creation? Because God is glorious, and we want to enjoy that, but we also want to declare that. So finally, point four, God is glorious, will we declare? As we saw through the work of God's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, this invitation for salvation has been extended to the whole world. God declared in verse 18 of chapter 66 that this is what was going to happen. The time is coming to gather all the nations, and that time is now. In verse 19, God's faithful people are being sent to the far reaches of the world. I did have some arrows, but they've disappeared. But Tarshish is up here, puts down here, Lud, Javan, Tubal. It's kind of the, the extent of the known world is where God's faithful people are going to proclaim the good news of who God is and what He's done. If you notice, they're being sent to the coastlands far away that have not heard of God's fame, nor seen God's glory. And they go to declare God's glory among the nations. Friends, this is the great motivation for mission. We desire people from every tribe and language and nation to receive salvation while they can, but ultimately our greater desire is for God to be glorified in all the world that He has made and amongst all the people who bear His image. And while the task seems, uh, it seems intimidating, it seems great, isn't it a comfort that we are not responsible for the salvation of the nations? We are responsible for declaring the truth of what we have known and experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ. To declare God's glory where it has not been known. And God's great assurance is that as His Word goes out for, to the nations, so the people will stream in from the nations. They will receive the blessing and the inclusion of being part of God's kingdom. Now it talks about them all coming to Jerusalem, but I take it this is not saying literally that all of God's people must live in the Middle East and we should all travel there now and set up home. Uh, now, I take it this is the expression that this is the kingdom of God that was given birth to through Israel, but is really fulfilled in the new creation. And so right now, God is gathering people from all the nations to be part of His kingdom as we await that future hope, the new heavens and the new earth. And we read about that in verses 22 and 23. As the new heavens, the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come before and worship me, declares the Lord. Now I reckon that sounds like a great spot to finish the book. And they all lived happily ever after, for all eternity in the new creation. But God has one more verse for us. I take it as a verse we'd probably rather skip. Have a look at verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die. And their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Why finish on that note? Now, I wanted to give you a discussion question, but we don't have time. And I thought it was maybe a bit unfair to finish on that note. What is it doing here? I take it it's the same thing that's been happening throughout these chapters. God gives this incredible hope of no more suffering, no more pain in the new creation. But He keeps on giving a warning that those who reject His invitation will suffer His judgment. And so as He raises the heights of the glory of worshipping Him for all eternity, He reminds us if you continue in rebellion, there is eternal hurt. And that is a thing that we want to do everything in our capacity to avoid. Turn and receive that invitation now. I wonder if it also reminds God's people that if they receive God's salvation, it's not because of their greatness in themselves. That fate of the people they look upon is what they too deserve but for the fact that the servant stood in their place 
and took that judgment for them. The nature of those in God's kingdom is humble gratitude and bold declaration. You see, God has a glorious solution for the suffering of our world. He will make all things new and He's bringing that about through the work of His Son. The question is whether we'll receive that invitation. And friends, if you haven't yet, receiving this, working out whether it is worth trusting in is far more important than your exams or your assessments. Do chat to a friend today. Uh, do come and grab me. We'd love to help you understand how this hope can be yours for all eternity. And friends, if you have received this, can I urge you to join with the faithful people of God who go and declare God's glory to all the nations. Uh, you're probably familiar with Matthew 28, where the risen Lord Jesus commissions His disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is the commission that's passed on from one generation of disciples to the next. And so, friends, if you know the glory of God through relationship with Jesus, will you declare it? Uh, that work starts down here in Sydney, on our campus, in our city. Uh, and again, I think my, yeah, my arrows have disappeared. But just imagine arrows that extend through across Australia and to every nation and country across the world, everywhere where the glory and fame of God is not known. <coughs> that's where we want to go and proclaim the glory of God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, some of you have language and passports having come from other countries that gives you great access to go and declare God's greatness there. For the rest of us, I take it we can learn some language and our passport's pretty handy in Australia. So, friends, will you take up this, this task, this commission, to not only go but to send, to desire a whole world that knows God's glory, for He alone deserves it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this great picture of what You're doing about our pain and our hurt. Father, we pray that we may all receive your mercy, accept your salvation, and enjoy eternity with you. And as we experience the great glory of what you've done for us in Jesus, may we be those who boldly declare with humility your greatness in all the nations. And we pray that your glory may be seen everywhere as you deserve. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.